1: Shall not steal.
0: Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, New International Version. Hello, and welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm Victoria Kay. We're glad you're able to join us for another episode of Anchored by Truth as we continue our series on the Ten Commandments. Just about everyone in our culture has heard about the Ten Commandments, if for no other reason, the famous movie by that name. Yet few people today understand the commandments are more than just a list of ten do's and don'ts. The Ten Commandments were an essential part of God's way of establishing a new chapter in the national identity of the people from which God was going to produce the Messiah. With us today in the studio, we have R.D. Fierro. R.D. is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. Today we are going to discuss the Eighth Commandment, which we heard in our opening scripture. R.D.? Like many of the commandments, it seems like it shouldn't really have been necessary for God to tell his people not to steal. But I guess it was necessary, wasn't it?
2: Well, I know it was necessary because God did it, and God never does anything that's not necessary. I think the Eighth Commandment was necessary for a number of reasons. But let's clarify something up front. As we have mentioned in a couple of our episodes now in this series on the Ten Commandments, The Ten Commandments were not new in the sense that God had never made it plain that these ethical requirements were not requirements that applied to man. In other words, God had made it plain that it was wrong to steal before God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Theft, like the majority of other sins, had been prohibited right from the beginning of man's existence. You know, sadly, theft was a part of the very first sin that is recorded in the Bible, when Adam and Eve stole fruit from a tree that did not belong to them. God had given Adam and Eve permission to eat from the fruit of just about every tree in the Garden of Eden. But God reserved one tree for himself. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil belonged to God and only to God. So when Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of that tree, part of what they were doing, obviously, was taking something that did not belong to them that's theft. And as we're going to talk about today, theft comes in a lot more forms than people usually think about. You know, the sad fact is that the Eighth Commandment was certainly necessary because man had demonstrated a propensity to steal things that didn't belong to him right from the beginning.
0: So God was not giving Moses a new requirement when he said, do not steal. God was simply restating an obligation that had existed from the beginning of man's own existence. And the book of Genesis contains other illustrations that people long before the Hebrews of Exodus knew that theft was wrong. For instance, another early chapter of Genesis, chapter 14, contains the well-known story where Abram rescued his nephew Lot from the hands of raiders and marauders who had attacked the city Lot was living in. The raiders had kidnapped the city's residents and stolen most of their goods and property. When Abraham rescued Lot, he didn't just bring the people back, but he also brought the property back. Genesis, of course, is the first book of the Bible, so this is another example from the first book of the Bible that the prohibition against theft existed long before God gave the Eighth Commandment.
2: Right. But the Eighth Commandment does something else besides just establishing that stealing from others is wrong. The Eighth Commandment also provides us with the God-given legal basis for recognizing the private ownership of property. Now, the private ownership of property is accepted in our culture, but it has been denied by various political and economic philosophies and schemes down through history. Down through history, there have been various supposedly utopian philosophies that basically disparaged the right of private property ownership. There have been a few, uh, I'm going to call them very unsuccessful attempts to build socialist and communist societies where private property ownership is either eliminated entirely or at least severely curtailed. But none of those attempts has ever built a successful or prosperous culture or community, in part because God designed the human economy to include the ability for people to be productive and for individuals to benefit from their own productivity.
0: The Eighth Commandment was God's ratification in the basic legal code of the nation He was establishing, that private ownership of property is an essential part of human society and economy. This does not mean that the Bible does not recognize that some level of common property ownership is sensible. One of the things God commanded the Israelites to do after giving them the Ten Commandments was the instructions for building the wilderness tabernacle, which was owned by the nation, not by an individual. But just because the Bible recognizes that public ownership of some property and facilities is beneficial, the Bible does not endorse the notion that governments may steal from their citizens under the claims of public welfare. So, one of the first points we should note about the Eighth Commandment is that it is not just concerned with someone stealing their neighbor's garden tools or shoplifting from the department store. The Eighth Commandment is concerned with a wide variety of human behavior, including that of individuals, groups, and governments.
2: Bible scholars down through history have recognized that governments are as capable of violating the Eighth Commandment against theft as well as individuals can. I mean, for instance, one of the best-known Bible commentaries was written by a man named Matthew Henry in the latter part of the 17th century and the early part of the 18th century. Matthew Henry wrote this, and I quote, Plunderers of kingdoms, though above human justice, break God's law, defrauding the public, contracting debts without prospect of paying them, or evading payment of just debts— extravagance, all living upon charity when not needful, all squeezing the poor in their wages. These and such things break this command, which requires industry, frugality, and content, and to do to others about worldly property as we would they should do to us.
0: Matthew Henry's observation helps us to see that the Eighth Commandment, like all of God's commandments, are designed to help us recognize the sin that lurks deep within our hearts. All you have to do is watch the three-year-old steal a cookie to know that you don't have to teach people to steal. We all have a built-in desire to take whatever we want when we want it. You don't have to teach kids to have that desire. What we have to do is to teach kids that even though there are some things that are very attractive to us, that we can only have them at certain times and within certain limits. There is nothing inherently wrong with us desiring to have good things, but we must all be trained to bridle those desires so that they serve us rather than leading us into sinful practices. That's one of the primary purposes of the Ten Commandments and the laws of God. But one of our big problems is that often we do not think carefully about how easily we can drift into sin. We think about the commandment not to steal, and we think that as long as we haven't taken anything from our neighbor, we haven't broken the commandment.
2: But as another Bible scholar, John Gill, who wrote in the early 18th century, noted, there is actually a wide variety of behaviors that violate the Eighth Commandment. Gill said this, and I quote, Thefts are of various kinds. There is private theft, picking of pockets, shoplifting, burglary, or breaking into houses in the night and carrying off goods, public theft, or robbing upon the highways. Domestic theft, as when wives take away their husbands' money or goods and conceal them or dispose of them without their knowledge and will. Children rob their parents, and servants purloin their master's effects ecclesiastical theft or sacrilege, and personal theft, as stealing of men and making slaves of them, selling them against their wills, quote. Well, all of those things are exactly what God did not want for his people as they were leaving Egypt, heading for their permanent home in Palestine. And as we have mentioned, God did not want his new nation that he was sending to the promised land to start a new chapter of its national identity by mimicking the patterns of the surrounding culture.
0: And the last part of the quote you read from John Gill is a good illustration of how God wanted to be sure that his nation, his people, did not adopt the economic or cultural depravities of the people they were displacing. For instance, slavery was a common part of the economic systems and social cultures of just about all of the Canaanite nations, and a myth that is sometimes circulated about the Bible is that the Bible approves of or endorses slavery because the Mosaic Law regulated slavery rather than completely outlawing it. But this is a more complicated topic than most people think, isn't it?
2: Well, it is true that the Mosaic Covenant regulated rather than outlawed slavery. There were a number of regulations in the Mosaic Covenant that instructed Hebrew masters on how they were to treat slaves. But we need to understand that the kind of servitude that was in view in the Mosaic Covenant was not the kind that we think about today when we hear the word slave. Famines and economic distress were very common in agricultural economies, and it was really easy for poor people to be in danger of dying because they couldn't provide for themselves. Well, in that kind of a circumstance, it was preferable for somebody, some people, to enter into a prolonged period of service to someone else who could at least provide for their basic needs. They were allowed to sell themselves or their children in order to be able to obtain the basic needs for existence. In other words, servitude, slavery, was better than death. But one of the things about the Mosaic Covenant, which distinguished the Hebrew nation from those around it, The Israelites were never permitted to treat another Hebrew as a slave. Leviticus chapter 25 makes it very clear that they were to help their neighbors who got into economic distress. They were not allowed to force them into unwanted servitude. Well, that in and of itself was a radical departure from all of the other cultures of the ancient world where there were few, if any, restrictions on the mistreatment of the poor. In most cultures of that time, the rich and the powerful regularly mistreated the poor in all kinds of ways. But as Gill noted, the kind of action that we tend to think of when we hear the word slave, that of forcing another person to serve someone against their will and without compensation, that is a clear violation of the Eighth Commandment.
0: So it would be fair to say that the Bible does prohibit slavery in the way that the term is typically used in our day and age. All of this points to the need for us to be at least somewhat familiar with the historical, cultural, and social context of the Bible's text, doesn't it?
2: Yes. You know, one of the things that is often not recognized about the Ten Commandments is that they are not just ten separate directives about ten different things. There is a common thread that binds all of the Ten Commandments together.
0: Which is? Which is what
2: we might call the term dignity. Let's think about this for just a second. The first three commandments all concern themselves with the dignity of God. Now that's entirely appropriate because God existed before he ever made any part of the created order that we see around us. Now, the next two commandments concern themselves with preserving God's dignity as God's dignity begins to manifest itself within the created order. The fourth commandment, to honor the Sabbath, refers us back to God's period of creative activity. The fifth commandment to honor our father and mother refers us back to God's partial delegation of the oversight of his created order to the creature, the only creature, that he created in his own image, which was man. Now God conveyed a portion of his authority over creation to Adam and Eve in what is often referred to as the dominion mandate.
0: Genesis chapter 1 verses 27 through 30 say, quote, and to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good.
2: Right. There's so much power in those four verses of scripture that we could spend a lot of episodes of Anchored by Truth just going through it all. But our focus today is still the Ten Commandments, and especially the Eighth Commandment. So after God delegated a portion of his authority over part of the created order to man, by the dominion mandate, well, God pronounced everything, quote, very good. Well, things would have remained, quote, very good, except that in chapter 3 of Genesis, we have Adam and Eve succumbing to the temptation of the serpent-slash-Satan. And then they stole the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and by doing so, they brought sin and death into the created order.
0: And after Adam and Eve's fall, God immediately began his plan of redemption, which unfolds throughout the rest of the Bible. And part of the plan of redemption was the restraint of sin that had been introduced through the rebellion of our first parents. God immediately pronounced a series of curses on both Satan and man and began giving commands for how man was to live in a fallen creation. Part of the way God continued that pattern of restraining sin was to give the Israelites the Ten Commandments as they were leaving Egypt, heading for the Promised Land. So, the last five of the Ten Commandments were all about the restraint of sin. But why do you say all of the commandments are concerned with dignity?
2: Well, as I mentioned, the fourth and fifth commandments are concerned with the dignity of God as God's presence is going to be manifested within the now-fallen creation. The fourth commandment is about God's dignity, which remains present in how we order our lives in terms of the work week. Six days for work, one day of rest. And the fifth commandment is about God's dignity with respect to His organizational plan and the transmission of authority among people. Again, people are the creatures that God created in His image. The first institution of society that God ordained was the family. And God implanted the authority for governing the family in the mother and the father. So God's dignity is embedded in all of the first five commandments. Well, the sixth commandment, which is do not murder, that is obviously concerned with the dignity of innocent human life. All human beings are image bearers of the Almighty God, and so all people possess the dignity that is inherent from bearing God's image.
0: And the sixth commandment tells us that we are to not disdain the inherent dignity by willingly taking the life of someone who has done nothing to deserve that. Further, we are to protect God's image-bearers by protecting life. I see where you're going with this. The seventh commandment is to not commit adultery. In other words, we are to protect the sanctity, the dignity, of marriage because it was the first institution created by God. God created the family for many reasons. To perpetuate human life in accordance with his command and to be fruitful and multiply. To ensure means for transmitting sacred orders and instructions, etc. So the seventh commandment is concerned with the dignity of marriage.
2: And the eighth commandment, at its heart, is concerned with the dignity of work. God always intended man to be a creative, productive creature, just as God is creative and productive. And God intended for men to be able to enjoy the fruits of their labor. If you grow the crop, you get to eat from the crop. If you tend the flock, you get to derive the benefits from tending the flock. You tend the garden, you get to enjoy the beauty of the garden, and you get to derive satisfaction from your work. Men were always intended to benefit from their productivity, from their work.
0: I think a lot of people forget that work is not a curse. God gave Adam work before the fall. Adam was to name all the animals and to tend the garden before the fall ever occurred. Work only became cursed after the fall. After man disobeyed God, man's productive efforts would now be laborious and not simply a matter of joyful productivity. And you can't separate work from productivity. Well, I guess you can if you look at some businesses and government offices, but as a general rule, work produces a product or a result that one who works is entitled to the benefit of their productivity. In modern society, we usually use money as a medium to measure the value of work and products, but the basic principle remains the same. Work produces a product. That basic right to the benefit of that product belongs to the producer. And for another person to steal or use that product without the consent of the producer is theft. So when someone commits theft, they are exhibiting a disdain for the work of someone else. They are demeaning the dignity of the work and the effort that someone put in to earn the money, product, produce a good, or generate something of value. That's not only a disregard for the dignity of another person's work, it's exhibiting disdain for God and his economy. We sometimes think that economic systems are human inventions, but the most basic economic system is working as God commanded to obtain benefits God permitted.
2: God's economy as he designed it makes perfect sense. It is not only reasonable, it is fair and just. Now, us human beings, we distort God's economy in all kinds of ways. Both individual human beings and collective organizations, such as governments, distort God's economy. And it would be impossible, probably, to catalog all the ways that we do it. But one thing is very certain. A great many of our distortions of God's economy violate the Eighth Commandment. You know, we always think the Eighth Commandment just kind of means, well, you shouldn't steal your neighbor's bike or ball. But the Eighth Commandment also means that a corrupt government shouldn't take money that's earned by one person and distribute it to another person who refuses to work or contribute.
0: And that's a really important point. Now, we're not talking here about cases where people can't work or are unable to provide for themselves. Just as the Bible is clear that theft is wrong, it is equally clear that we have a duty to provide for the poor and less fortunate. Verses from the Old Testament such as Leviticus 25:35 make this duty mandatory, and verses from the New Testament reiterate this command. James chapter 1 verse 27 says, quote, "Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this: to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world, Now that's from the New International Version.
2: So the point of all of this is that the Eighth Commandment, like the commandments that preceded and follow it, is concerned with dignity. The Eighth Commandment is concerned with the dignity of work. And next episode of Anchored by Truth, we're going to address the Ninth Commandment, which is not to lie. Well, we're going to see that the ninth commandment is concerned with the dignity of words, of speech, and of truth. So, one thread that ties all of the commandments together is that they are all concerned with the dignity of God and the dignity of people because people are God's image bearers. The sixth commandment is concerned with the dignity of their lives. The seventh commandment is concerned with the dignity of marriage, with human relationship, with human family. And the Eighth Commandment is concerned with the dignity of work. And one final point that we should cover before we close for today is that all of these observations point us back to the reality of the creation record that is contained in Genesis.
0: Well, the Fourth Commandment to honor the Sabbath is a clear reference to the creation story. God conducted His creative activity over a period of six days and rested on the seventh. He directed that the example that he had set be replicated in the lives of people. How does the Eighth Commandment against theft remind us of the creation account?
2: Because it reminds us that when God made the world, part of God's plan was that man would have a role within the created order that was different from that of all other creatures. You know, notice, it's pretty obvious, that other than giving other creatures a sort of generalized command to reproduce, God did not give any other creature any command or instruction. But as soon as God created man, God gave man a command to, quote, subdue the earth and to, quote, rule over the birds and the fish and the land animals. Well, said differently, God gave Adam work that went beyond what Adam simply needed to do to survive. God gave Adam a job. God always intended to give Adam a job. And God always intended that the work that he planned for man would produce results, and some of those results were going to belong to the producer. Well, none of that economic system of work, production, result, retention, None of that would have made any sense if it had been permissible for other people to simply steal the results, the production of other people. If we will probe the depth of the Ten Commandments of the other parts of Scripture, we will see how all the parts of Scripture work beautifully together, and that unity will produce strength of faith in us individually, and God will bless anyone who wants to honor Him by studying His Word carefully.
0: It's impossible to say what the world and economy would have been like if the fall hadn't occurred. It did. But we see from the first offerings that Abel and Cain brought from the beginning God-expected men to bring offerings to him. Well, how can we bring offerings from the product of others? We can't. We can only offer to God that which we have produced, and that means work, and that means the producer is entitled to the results of their work. God built production and retention into the economy of the world, and he protects the dignity of that system in part by means of the Eighth Commandment. We do know the Eighth Commandment would not have been necessary except for the fall, because the Eighth Commandment restrains the sin that came from the fall. God wanted them to have a right relationship with him and a right relationship with each other. So God gave them commandments to further that goal. Sounds like a good time to go to our God in prayer. Today, let's listen to a prayer for those who have dedicated their lives to take God's world to all tribes, tongues, and nations so that all people may benefit from God's grace and the Bible's wisdom.
1: A prayer for Christian missionaries. Father of redemption, you are a powerful and loving God and our ever-faithful tower of refuge and strength. You are a God who takes pleasure in rescuing lost sheep and in bringing them into your kingdom. You are the God of the ends and the means. May all the earth sing praises to your name. Lord, the Bible rightly asks how the lost can hear of the salvation available through Christ's life, death, and resurrection unless preachers are sent to proclaim the gospel. We know they cannot, and today, A great many of your faithful people continue to leave their families and homes to travel to remote corners to preach your message of hope and good news today we want to pray for all these missionaries and to thank you for your provision of them Lord we know that many missionaries preach the gospel in lands where your word is not welcome in fact in some lands to speak about you brings a sentence of death we know that there are many places where government leaders and authorities will exercise the full power of their offices to oppose and persecute your messengers therefore we pray for special protection for all those who preach in these dangerous countries and places we ask that you watch over these missionaries protecting them as they travel and minister, and confounding the efforts of those who seek their harm. We also pray that you give them fertile fields in which to plant your word, which is the seed of true life. We pray that you would open the hearts of those who hear the word. Give them the courage to accept Christ, even as they risk their lives to do so. Bring leaders out of the converted so that ministries and churches once begun will continue to grow and expand provide the resources the missionaries and churches need to sustain themselves whether it be bibles educational literature money or resources for daily living show us how you would have us help and serve in bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth while not all are called to go or preach we know that there is a way that all of us can contribute. Help us to be persistent in our prayers and make us fervent in our desire to see your word spread and your kingdom grow. Christ commanded that his word be spread until he returns again. So in his holy name, we pray for his kingdom and his messengers. Amen.
0: Is the Bible important in your life? Supporting Anchored by Truth with a contribution is an easy way to put your faith into action. The opportunity to help is available at crystalseabooks.com. How wonderful would it be for Jesus to commend us because we made His Word a priority in our lives and giving. We are grateful for your support and partnership. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage friends to tune in also or to listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where
2: We're not perfect, but our boss is. And for those of you who need that website one more time, that's crystalcbooks.com. Crystal, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-C-S-E-A, and books, B O O K S. -S 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 Dot .com Thank you for your support.